thank you for the good music tonight. Appreciate uh, Brother Sam singing that song. Is this thing on again? One song I should have. We have more problem with this thing. Some boys came and fixed it too. <laughs> Crazy. But I do appreciate that old song. I uh, found an old book a long time ago, maybe 10 years ago, I guess. And that was a little biography of Brother Weigel. And uh, as the pastor just said, is that song was born out of great problem that he had in his life, grave problem. And he had the music. He went to the Cadle Tabernacle in Indianapolis, Indiana, the Cato Tabernacle that would seat 10,000 people. Uh, they had 10,000 every Sunday for uh, two or three decades. Uh, Dr. B.R. Lakin pastored that church for a dozen years, but Cato, Howard Cato, E. Howard Cato was there for a long, long time. And they had uh, their conference or camp meeting, whatever you want to call it, place was packed. And uh, Brother Weigel, uh, was asked to come and, and sing, and he had just gotten uh, all the notes and whatever you call it. I'm not a musician. And he handed it to the pianist as he walked to the pulpit. He had never practiced it uh, with the lady. And she began to play, and he sang that song that night. And of course, that place absolutely erupted. And I've been in services when that song was sung, and it has absolutely erupted. And he said in the little book that over 60 musicians of note came to him after he sang that for the very first time. Uh, they said, this is the song that we've been looking for all of our life. And it's been a, I don't know if this is a good term or not. This has been a, that song has been a Christian hit for a long, long time. And I wouldn't be surprised if we got to sing that in heaven. I think that'd be a wonderful thing, seeing him sitting there on the throne. And I don't know the millions of people in glory and lift our voice in a heavenly choir if it wasn't for Jesus. No one ever cared for us like he did. I appreciate you singing it, Sam. It blessed my heart. I've known Sam since he was a little boy, and that was a long time ago. <laughs> Bless his heart, I knew his daddy. I think I knew your dad before he married your mother, if my memory's right, way, way, way back. He's just a teenage boy when I met him, uh, maybe 14, 15 years of age. I think he was over here, he was on the mountain. Yeah, over on Sand Mountain in uh, I can't even remember that old, what was the old man that had that work? You can't even, but you're going to be bad when you get my age if you can't remember that now, bless your heart. But uh, Fred Vaught's camp, that's right, and that's where he was. And I met their, his father and uh, loved his dad for a long, long time, prayed for him for a long, long time. I'm glad to see him. I, he told me when I was here in March, he's going to get married, aren't you? God bless your heart. We'll really be praying for her, for her. My soul. I want you to look in your book, if you would, to the 32nd chapter of the book of Genesis. I was looking at my, I got way more notes than I think I have time tonight. But I was 
reading the scripture as my custom is before I preach again the message. And I read a couple of verses up from where I'm going to start tonight, the 22nd verse. And I read that 21st verse. And it said, so went the present over before him. I said, I thought to myself, the present. And then I looked in the next, the previous verse to that. And of course, he was trying to uh, placate his brother that he was getting ready to meet. And so he sent a present. And I wrote in, my, in the margin of my Bible, God doesn't want your present. He wants your person. And I want to talk to you along those lines tonight. Uh, my thought is Jacob, Jabbok, and you. And begin our reading in verse 22. And he rose up that night and took his two wives. Now there's a problem right there, I guess. I wish I hadn't have said that. but And he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two women servants and his eleven sons passed over the ford Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. When he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. He said, let me go. For the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Peniel, uh, the, sun, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. And therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh, unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here in this uh, church building tonight. We thank you for the good singing we've enjoyed and the fellowship that we already have been blessed with in this room. We thank you for folk coming faithfully. And uh, men have worked, some ladies perhaps, at the labored through the day and Lord I don't want to be lengthy uh, as I said Lord I think I got a little bit too much message for the hour but I pray that you help my thoughts to be consumed with your thoughts and that those things that are unnecessary to be said tonight would be conveniently eliminated and there would still be continuity in the message that I feel like I need to lay at the heart's door of our listeners this evening. And I ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Jacob has gathered his family and 
his flocks. And he fords the river Jabbok in the evening. He is between Laban, his father-in-law, who was not overly happy with him at any time, and Esau, his brother. He's now facing a family reunion, and his brother has 400 men accompanying him. I don't know how warm of a reception it's going to be, you know, Merry Christmas, uh, I come to kill you. And oftentimes, I think our companions, our churches, our activities, our busyness keeps us from getting what God has in store for our lives. Our work sometimes can become an elaborate ploy to help us to avoid the fact that God is dealing with us in a certain area. In a crowd, it's easy to compare ourselves with others and sometimes look pretty good. We condemn the sins that we don't commit and cover with multitudinous excuses the ones that we have a propensity for that are ten times worse than the ones we condemn in others. I think we need to get more interested in the work that God wants to do in us than the work that we want to do to the benefit, perhaps, of others. A lot of times when I see a preacher that I haven't seen in a long time and and maybe some Christian brother says it to me quite often. They'll say, are you keeping busy? To me, that's one of the dumbest questions you could ever ask a preacher. It's not the measure of our ministerial success how busy we are. Because our busyness often keeps us from God. The greatest question I think I was ever asked by a preacher he was a famous man in the state of Michigan and had some influence around the world in GARB circles. He founded two Baptist colleges in the city of Grand Rapids. His church back in the day ran a couple thousand. Dr. Uh, J. Otis Fuller, or Otis J. Fuller, I guess it was. And a uh, great man, tremendous preacher had, I think, the greatest preaching voice I ever heard in my life. My dad would have him, when he was an ancient man, once a year, come in and preach on a Sunday uh, for maybe the last decade of his life. And uh, he would always drink uh, something while he was preaching. And I went up to him one day and I said, Dr. Fuller, uh, what are you drinking there? And he drank a combination of course, water, honey, cayenne pepper, and something else that I can't remember. Vinegar. And I said, is that what you think makes your voice so great? He said, well, probably is, Tim. And I thought to myself, I just wouldn't have a lousy one and have to drink that kind of stuff while I'm preaching. But he asked me one day, we were in a restaurant, and he asked me the most interesting question I think I've ever been asked. He said, Tim, 
tell me the most interesting conversion that you've had in your ministry in recent days. Thankfully, I had just been involved in winning a Jewish lady uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, down in North Florida. She'd come to the meeting. Uh, really, she came to accompany some other people, but the Holy Ghost convicted her and we were able to lead her to Christ in the back of the auditorium before she got out of the building. I like a little, there's a little phrase here in verse number 24. And Jacob was left alone. Alone. It would be good every once in a while if we would just be left alone in the presence of God. I think God can do very little with our self-sufficiency. And when a Christian feels like, you know, I have finally arrived, your boat have, probably hasn't even left the dock. Many mistake the shores of their personal experience with the vast ocean of God's salvation. God's love and forgiveness is our first experience with him sad to say that is all the farther some people go his holiness his justice equity righteousness are all shunned because they will mean the death to everything else in life that is not holy and divine. Listen, when you became a child of God, you also became a, part a partaker of His divine nature. And in order to en enjoy that divine nature to its fullest, we must ultimately eliminate the strength of the human nature in our lives. We've got to deal with it. We've got to put it in its place. There must be a choice made between God and self. And there's another little one word really in that 24th verse. He was left alone and there. And there. There must be a, a there for every single child of God. A blessed place where you meet him and he meets you and you experience some of what Jacob experienced in this chapter. For child of God, you know this as well as I do. Either God will reign in your life or you will continue to sit on the throne and reign yourself. Oswald Chambers said this, the spheres that God brings us into are not meant to teach us something, but to make us something. God wants to make something of each and every one of us. So many people, I think, miss the great blessings of God because of other things. I was in a meeting, my goodness, probably 20 years ago, and a man, I, I don't know how many mission trips I've made uh, around the world in different places. And a man had been on a mission trip. He came off of that mission trip. He's 
came home and he said, I said to his wife, said to the church, said to his pastor, I feel that God has called me to the mission field. When he made that public on the way home in the car, or perhaps when he got to the house, his wife said to him, over my dead body. Three weeks later, she got sick. Sixty days later, she was dead. And here he now is a widower with three little girls. And he never went. He never went to the field. He backslid, got away from God and away from church and away from everything that was holy and right and godly. You see, God must change you or you will change him. If God doesn't change you, then we make God. God becomes real lovey-dovey. He just becomes, you know, this patron that helps us out when we're in a mess and salves our conscience, we think. And as a preacher, you, you can't love people more than you love God. As a parent, you can't love your children more than you love God. There's not a wife in this room that wouldn't want their husband to love Jesus more than they love her because if you love Jesus right, you'll love that lady right. So silently through the night, there's a wrestling match, a very familiar match. Oh, there's a double leg takedown, single leg takedown. Uh, there's reversals. They never get off the mat, though. You never get away. The conflicts of life. And, and you know, you, I think one of the most conflicting things that happens in a Christian's life is those silences. There was no communication there for a while. It's most maddening. It's frustrating when you can't hear from God. You can't get what you want to hear from the Lord. You know, preachers are funny people. I got a, I got a pastor friend. Uh, I won't call his name. I won't call the state. But he's told me on more than one occasion, he said, my wife has never one time told me that I preached a good message. She's told me about all the things I said wrong or the things I did wrong. He's a faithful brother, but he is living with Jezebel, in my opinion. He said, why would you say that? I have met her. <laughs> I heard I heard about a preacher, he, he, he thought he hit a home run. And they were riding home in the car, and he was wanting his wife to compliment him a little bit, and she didn't say anything, and he said, you know, honey, there really are not that many great preachers left in America. She said, yes, honey, that's true, and there's one less than you think there is. <laughs> that would only be humorous to a preacher, I guess. The morning dawns there, and verse number 26, the Bible said, For the day breaketh. They'd wrestled all night long. 
And it seems like this angel of the Lord kind of gives up on him. And he hurts him. You know, there's a lot, there's some Christians that never have to be struggled with. They acquiesce. They do exactly what the preacher says to do. Uh, doesn't make any difference what it is. The preacher's right. The Bible's right. And they just do. And then there's others of us that we have to quibble. And we have to argue. And we have to go our own way, even after we're saved. And that's why I think God has to cripple some of us. I think it's because of our attitude, because perhaps of our personality, maybe our lack of character. He, listen, God doesn't do things to you. He does things for you. You know, if you have a wrestling match with God in regard to your commitment, in regard to your Christian walk and in your life, and if you have this match and you win, you lose. But if he wins, he wins, and you win. It's a win-win situation when God wins the wrestling matches in our lives. See, victory comes when we submit to him, when Jacob, when Jacob finally admitted, he said there in verse number 27, what is thy name? And he answered, Jacob. When he admitted his name, Jacob admitted his nature. When you come to the truth of the fact of what you really are, he's admitting, I stole the birthright. What is your name? Jacob. What's it mean? Jacob means crook, thief, um, unethical. He, He was a bad man, bad boy. His commitment to the consecrated life said, he's saying, I have ceased to be my old self and I will become what God wants me to be. And God changes his name. He gets a new name. I don't think God is interested. You take Brother Sam, he's a good singer. I don't think God is interested in the consecration of that talent. I think God is interested in the present the presentation amount to much. Ability not going to amount to much. But if you would present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him, that's a great spiritual mountain that you've been able to climb for God. Verse 30, that place, Jacob called that place Paniah. And he said, I saw God face to face. Now, some of us would scratch our head and say, you know, it says over there in Exodus chapter 33 that nobody has seen God and lived. Now, you can look, I can look at that one of two ways. The first time Jacob told the truth was three verses ago. So he might even be lying about that. But I think there's a little bit more to it than that. I think he did see God and he did die. He died such a death to self and to sin that God gave him a new name, Israel. 
God, God wants us to live a holy life. God wants us to live a life that is pleasing to him. You know, that great verse, 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse number 14 talks about turn from your wicked ways and all. You know, you know the average Christian in America can't even turn the television off. Can't even put your phone up. It's, it's just like it's attached, you know, it's the, your third hand or whatever. You got Christian, I was in a, uh, was it last week? Yeah, it was last week. I was in a mission conference, I preached a mission conference, and they had lunch at the church every day, and I don't know, these two ladies, they came, and they said, we got, I had said something about playing cards. I, it had, I don't know what that had to do with mission conference, but I had said something about playing cards. I talked about the dirty deck and talking about Charles Weigel, who wrote that song. Charles Weigel wrote probably the best book against playing cards that's ever been written. He nails it down. And I, don't, I don't believe that hands that would hold playing cards could, as a child of God, could be the same hands that would hold the word of God. See, those playing cards, you may have them in your home. I'd throw them out if I was you tonight. Bring them and put them on the altar or something. But those playing cards were invented by an insane king in France. And the joker is Jesus. And the king is Satan. God help. Why in the world would you want that in your home? Why would you teach your children to play poker? Got a little quiet in here, didn't it, preacher? Holiness becomes transfigured morality. And it's a measure. Holy, listen. You can measure your spiritual growth by your sensitivity to sin. It says in our book in the New Testament, I read it this week in the Romans, I believe. Sin must become exceedingly sinful. Most of us treat sin like it's a nice little kitty or a nice little puppy. You know, we just can play with it. and Friend, sin is like a roaring lion. Sin, sin is like a venomous snake that has no motive other than to destroy your life. God help us to get to a level of commitment. There was a family in Ohio some years ago, middle class home, young couple. They were in a meeting like this, revival meeting like this, and uh, the husband uh, turned to the wife in the invitation and uh, whispered to her, says, you know, I think God's calling me uh, to preach. Really, I think God's calling me to the mission field. Good, submissive, lovely wife that she was, she smiled up through her, her tears and her husband's face and said, I believe it too. God's been talking to me about it. I'm, God, I'm glad he got, finally got through to you. They surrendered. They sold their house. They went off to Bible college, graduated from Bible college. All through 
college. You know, I don't know if you ever went to Bible college, but you don't really have the best of furniture when you go to Bible college if you're married. You don't have the best of anything. You're just getting by. Thank God for it. And uh, so they, when they got ready to go to the field, they began to sell everything. But she had some curtains. Now, you, this was back in the 70s, and so I don't know if anybody has purple curtains anymore. But back in the 70s, they were kind of, in style, along with shag rugs. How many remember shag rugs? It just tells how old you are now. Some of you didn't have enough courage to even raise your hand to that. I ain't raising my hand letting people know what I know what shag rugs were. Well, she loved those purple curtains. And she said, do you think it'd be all right, honey, if I packed those up and uh, we took them to the mission field? They went to Venezuela. And they went to a native tribe uh, just in a difficult, difficult place and uh, had just a bamboo hut, not much more than a bamboo hut. And uh, the natives helped build it. And they, they would not put windows in that particular uh, tribal group. They did not put windows in their homes because they felt like that gave access to the demons. And the wife could hardly stand it. And finally the husband put a, couple windows in there and she was uh, there in that house but just was not comfortable she was not happy Uh, she really hated it she had some ability as a nurse and so she would uh, be as a midwife to the people uh, the ladies that were having babies and that was kind of an inroad uh, to them reaching people with the gospel and things were going uh, quite well but she never would put those curtains up because that little hut was not home to her. One day she was involved in delivering a baby that was grotesque, deformed terribly. And when the child was delivered, the native midwife took the baby, smashed it on the ground, picked it up by a leg, and threw it out in the yard. Dogs devoured that child. As she stood there, shocked beyond belief at what these people had done. She ran back to her home, weeping, fell on her knees. She was there for hours and really may have been for days. Shocked beyond belief. One day, her husband noticed her, began to stir. She got up. She went over to that box. She opened it, took out those curtains, and put them up in the windows. Finally, finally, she became captive to the call of God on her life to go to this horrible horrible place where people were demented and demon-possessed and beyond belief and to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 31. And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him and he halted upon his thigh. He limps. He's crippled. 
You see, the man of God is not necessarily the mightiest and the one with the biggest muscles or the loudest voice, the leather-lunged orator. The man of weakness and no strength in himself who recognized a total and true dependence upon God. My reliance, our reliance is all wrapped up in him. This crippled child of God can climb higher on his knees than the well-equipped mountain here in the flesh. I mentioned him, I think, Sunday morning. My precious dear friend, Randy Pike, went home to be with the Lord the 15th day of March, paralyzed from the waist down for over 70 years of his life. What a mountainous man of God he was. I've talked to his wife so many times since. I love Adine, and she's way up in her age. Just precious, precious people. I believe this with all of my heart that a limping Israel, a limping Israel can outrun a healthy Jacob any day of the week spiritually. When one has seen God face to face and been touched and transformed, you won't run off at the, some tangent or get sidetracked. We got a bunch of nuts in this country right now called recovering fundamentalist. I have no desire to recover from being a fundamentalist. Somebody who believes in the fundamentals of the faith. I waver from that old book. We've got a nut in Jacksonville trying to wean people off the King James Bible. God help us is right. I'll tell you how long I've been a fundamentalist. I was born in 1949. My dad was in Bible college the next spring at J. Frank Norris's, the First Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas, and I spent time in the nursery. So I've been a fundamentalist since I was in diapers. I've been a fundamentalist a long, long time. I'm going to stay with this old book and stay with the fundamentals of the faith. I'm going to, I want to stand true in who cares what the rest of the world's doing. God help us to be faithful. I said this, I think, last week, preaching, putting a call out. The pastor called me. Uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks before the meeting, and he said, now, what, what is the theme that you use uh, when you preach a mission conference? I said, I'm after the money, and I'm after the men. He said, well, we better amend that a little bit. I said, go ahead if you want to, and he did. He made it nice. But I, I'm not after the money for me. I'm after the money to reach people around the world. I took on... The, the, young, the young missionary was there just getting started, going with the Navajo Indians. I took him on for 25 bucks a month myself. I gave him the first four months. I took a $100 bill out. I took a $100 bill out. I gave that kid. I said, this is the first four months. I, I, he said nice things to me. I walked here. I walked up the aisle. I didn't get five rows up, and a man handed me a $100 bill. 
Do you think for one second you can outgive God? The book says, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Heaped up, pressed down, shaken together, shall men give. God will take care of you. Spurgeon said, We should make our young men prove that they should not go. Jim Elliott said this, so many missionaries are intent on doing something and they forget that God's main goal is to make something of them. Of them. I'm done. I was preaching in North Florida uh, some time ago and uh, <laughs> I knew this man. He was a cantankerous uh, old curmudgeon his sister uh, was a sweet, precious lady and a member of the church that I was preaching at, and he was a member of a church that I had preached at before, so I knew him. And they were having a, a preacher's fellowship. It was a, five, it was a Sunday through Friday meeting. I don't know, it was either a Tuesday. I think it was a Tuesday meeting. And uh, so they were having a preacher's fellowship. I hate them. I don't like going to them. Basically, because some guy will get up, well, you know, I preached this last Sunday, and, you know, I didn't have time to study, so I'll just give you this. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear some warmed-over thing from last Sunday that he had a fight with his wife all the way to the meeting about even coming. I don't want to hear that. And that's basically what they are. And so I'm sitting about, I don't know, 90% of the way back in the auditorium, and that old codger is sitting one pew away from me in front of me. And I noticed a, a set of crutches at the end of his pew. And I noticed he was sitting kind of funny in the pew. And uh, so, I don't know, there was a little lull, I guess. And the preacher said, does anybody like to give a testimony? He stood up. And I said, oh, boy, this ought to be something. Because I knew him. And this is what that precious man said. He said, I uh, uh, was driving my tractor, uh, bush hogging some property I'm on my property to get ready to plant some things to grow, open up some new acreage. He said, I went underneath a tree and a, and a vine caught me right here in the neck and pulled me off of my tractor right into the bush hog. He said, there in that bush hog, he said, my knee was trapped in that. I couldn't get out. There's no way. And he said, I kept pulling and pulling. And he said, finally, I got myself out of there, pulled all the ligaments in my left, I believe it was left leg, except for a few in the back. And he said, I lay there on the ground. I couldn't do anything. But the tractor's still going. And the tractor circled around. And he said, it started coming right for me. And I said, he said, this is the end. He said, about 30 feet before it got to me, it just turned and went off and went up against a fence post and just kept running and running and running. His wife had uh, dementia, and uh, she didn't really pay any attention to it until it got dark, and he hadn't come home. She didn't know, and so she, obviously, she went out and, 
with great difficulty and then got somebody to help him and he went to the hospital. Said, I spent 90 days in the hospital. And this is what he said that so blessed my heart. He said, that bed became my green pastures and those lonely nights, the still waters. And God restored my soul. You know, sometimes we have to go through some things to get us to where God wants us to be. I am not. Look what he says in verse 10. Oh, my, yes. He said, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast shewed unto thy servant. My soul. Anybody here tonight say, Brother Green, I'm worth, I'm worth all the mercies. I deserved all his grace. Uh-uh. It's unmerited favor. The grace of God that's been shed abroad in our lives. You know, you remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had sinned. They tried to cover themselves with uh, leaves. It didn't work very well. And so God provided a lamb, and that lamb died and shed his blood that man could be covered. And I don't know, I don't know up until that time whether God, because it would be so out of character for God to kill anything. But he killed that lamb that they could be covered. Then on Calvary, his precious son, the Lamb of God, he clothed humanity in grace and forgiveness and love wrapped his arms around this old world to give us what I think sometimes we take so for granted, so careless about. Why would I want to hold on to some foolishness of the world in the light of Calvary, in the light of what Jesus Christ I remember back when I was a, I don't know if I was a preacher yet or not. I was in Bible school, I think. And uh, my wife had a collection of records. They weren't good records. And uh, back in the day, you know, churches would have, uh, they, they would put a barrel out there and they'd, I put some kindling in it, I guess, and maybe pour some gas on it or whatever. And people would throw books in that weren't any good, and people would throw records in that weren't any good, and, and all that kind of stuff. Throw it in there and, and have a burning, burning. Anybody ever go to a church that had that? Yeah, a few of us had. And so I told my wife, I said, "Honey, you know these records. If you you got to get rid of these records." She said, "Well, you're going to have to get rid of some records too." I said, honey, I don't have any records. She said, you do, do you? got one. I said, what's that? 
They made a record of the 1968 Detroit Tigers when they won the World Series. And she wanted me to throw that in the pot and burn it. <laughs> what was wrong with that? Al Kaline and uh, Denny McClain and Mickey Lolich won three games? You mean I got to... You know where it went? It went in the pot with all of hers. You know how much we've missed it? Zero. You know what the devil tells you about the stuff you're hanging on to that you ought to get rid of? You could never live without it. You miss it. Oh, someday there may be some value in it. I bet you that 1968 Detroit Tigers World Series thing, it might be worth five bucks today. Getting rid of it. Then I don't, I don't think it was really all that awful. Some of that stuff she had was. <laughs> God help us. Here we are. I've got this. I'm going to wrestle with this angel all night long. And all he wants me to do is submit to the will of God. Father in heaven, we thank you for these few minutes. I pray you'd uh, speak to our hearts. Way down deep in that secret place. That area where we hardly ever go. When the memories, I tell you, we smother them quickly. When it gets mentioned, our hackles raise. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. And even when the precious Holy Ghost convicts us about it, we argue with him. I pray you'd help us to take a spiritual inspection of our own lives. Clean out the closet of our soul. Get rid of some junk. Doesn't matter at all. That revival that that song being sung about. Let the spirit control. Our heads bowed, obviously. Let's stand our feet. The altars are about three-fourths full. Maybe tonight you need to come and do a little business with God. Maybe a lot of business. Maybe a big business with God tonight about what he's talked to you about in this service.